I'm Texas Commission on Environmental Quality Commissioner Toby Baker. I'd like to wish a warm, heartfelt, happy Thanksgiving to the 10 people listening today. And now here's your host, Revis Hamilton. I mean, Reeve Hamilton. Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton here with the podcast for the week of Thanksgiving. I am joined by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Hello, Revis. Hello, Rossus. <laughs> editor Emily Ramshaw. Uh, was that a global warming joke that he was making by wishing us a warm welcome? Oh. I doubt I, it. I didn't get that. I didn't hear a single joke in that entire intro. So, I, What about Revis? I think he was serious. Oh. That's it's my little used but formal name. Oh, his Roman hmm. name. And yeah. Morgan Smith, education reporter extraordinaire. You're stealing my part. She's also here. Hello. If we had ten listeners when this started... We don't have We're them down now. to nine. Yeah. <laughs> We're down into the single digits. Not even all of us are listening. Uh, well, let's let's tell those nine people what they have in store in the coming weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Sounds like we might get one more lawsuit against the federal government out of our outgoing attorney general. Is that right, Ross? Yeah, Ross he is- jumped in right after the president issued or said he was going to issue an executive order on immigration and said, this is Greg Abbott, we're talking about the governor-elect, and said that... It's unconstitutional, and Texas will sue. Uh, it's a little bit unclear, although I think he had a rationale for it. It's a little bit unclear what harm he thinks the state was done by this and ha- what the basis for this will be. But um, I'm sure they'll cook something Well, isn't there – I mean, isn't there big anxiety that this is going to lead even more people to think that Texas is a place where they can find refuge and, and you know, an increasing number of undocumented immigrants will come across the state's southern border, as we saw earlier this year? Well, yeah, and I guess increased demand on state services, et cetera, et cetera. Texas right. has um, is second only to California in the number of undocumented immigrants living in the state already. And I, I can't remember the exact number. I think 1.3 million in Texas would be um, unfettered by this order. Yeah, I think they're one point. I think it's closer to like 500,000 of Texas's undocumented immigrants could fall under this this new sort of category, which is folks whose kids are legally living in in the United States. But I think it's about five million nationally. Nationally, right? yes. Uh, but this is something that, while not on this scale, has been done by previous presidents, right? Including the H.W. Bush. Oh. Well, it's yeah, it's been done by other presidents. It's been done under other circumstances, and it hasn't been done as part of a you know. A war between the executive and legislative branches of the federal government. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's hard to tell which, you know, it's like running a daycare. It's hard to tell which corner to send the kids to and which kids started the fight. But the president said Congress hasn't passed a law. Congress said we were going to pass a law. He said the order can be superseded by a law if Congress will pass one. And we go squabbling into another year. And then you have, uh, you know, Cruz has also come out and said, Ted Cruz, our senator, has come out and said that they should just hold up all of Obama's nominations until this whole executive order thing goes away. Although that was pointed out to him on Fox News that that would mean keeping Eric Holder in his current job as the U.S. Attorney General, which he probably wouldn't love. Right. Keep the Attorney General, keep the Defense Secretary, and on and on. Is it it normal for the 
at this point, should Greg Abbott still be doing attorney general business or should that be sort of handed over to Ken Paxton? He's the, attorney general. He's the only He's attorney, the attorney general we have. Right. I mean, and honestly, this is puts him in a perfect spot because he gets to actually take action on something in the AG's office, you know, while he's promoting it as the governor elect. So it's kind of like a double whammy. He gets to serve two roles. Right. It's the first time in his entire career that he's entirely sure that the next governor will support everything he does. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, we know how Republicans feel about this messaging. It's been great for Rick Perry's reputation, you know, in, in recent months. Um, you know, I think has been able to sort of cast him in a bright light among Republicans while he's fighting this indictment at home. So this is a popular red meat issue. Yeah, the war on Washington continues. Right. We, uh, this is Greg Abbott's 33rd lawsuit against the federal government. His 30th? Uh, 30th or? against the Obama administration. Well, that's a, that's a hefty pretty clear load. record. Yep. Well, and well, I guess this will be his last hurrah. You don't see well, he has anymore. months left. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Does he get to count lawsuits that he helps bring as governor? Hmm. It, that will add to his thirty-three. Yeah. Are you wondering can his streak continue? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Could yeah. It might not be. Will his he last have fifty-five? I right. think Ken Paxton will probably start claiming. Yeah. Help <laughs> this, you know, at this point, the trophy's going Ken Paxton's wall. Ken Paxton's probably already counting this one. Well, you know, there's unless, actually unless Abbott sort of solves all the problems before he gets to the governor's office. I, I talked to somebody on the uh, who was talking about the Paxton. Um, transition into office. And one of the first things that they're having to do is figure out the litigation schedule. Apparently, it's pretty front-loaded in January, February, and March. As he becomes attorney general, all of these cases that Greg Abbott, both against the administration and other cases too, there's quite a litigation load. So I think he'll be... A lot to read up on over the clean up for a while. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, well, getting back to speaking of red meat, let's move over to our State Board of Education. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're ever... Continuing debates about our textbooks. Morgan. That's right. (laughs) Well, um, on Friday, the State Board of Education approved new social studies textbooks along with fine arts and math textbooks, but nobody really talk too much about the fine Nobody arts really and math textbooks. Um, gives a hoot Moses about was one of our best, our best <laughs> right. fine artists, I think, um, was the conclusion. Right. Uh, all the attention was on the social studies textbooks because of um, kind of ongoing controversies, both about the textbook approval process, which allows for publishers to make changes pretty much until the 11th hour, so it can create this opening for board members to put pressure on them to make Uh, what some would call politically motivated changes. Um, And then also it's just dredged up all of the controversy that happened in in 2010 when the state approved these new social studies standards, and that was when the board was controlled by um, a block of of socially, very socially conservative members, and they were able to get um, a lot of of standards in place in Texas curriculum that – I think probably sets it apart uh, from curriculum in other states and just nationally. So they they were not voting on standards. Could they change the standards at this point or are standards set in place and they're just approving textbooks that fit or don't fit them? Right. The the latter. So the standards won't be up for approval for a number of more years. These were – we're finally getting around to approving the textbooks that reflect the standards that were changed in 2010. 
Now, do these so the school districts? So what I always I always find like ridiculous about this whole process is that the school districts don't have to follow these guidelines, right? They don't have to use these textbooks, right? So what's the point, even? Yeah. So this is kind of to, a Morgan has to have something to write about, <laughs> right? I know. I have I have to have somewhere to spend my days. Right. Um, it's like daycare. <laughs> Getting back to Ross's daycare analogy. for education <laughs> reporters. Um, so yeah, this is kind of a. a curious time for the SBOE. I think um, the legislature has gradually chipped away a lot of its responsibilities. A lot of the SBOE's responsibilities. A lot of the SBOE's responsibilities. And um, one of those is is that in 2011, lawmakers decentralized the textbook purchasing. So put school districts individually in charge of picking out what instructional materials they wanted instead of having the state have one big contract. And um, when the state had one big contract, the State Board of Education had a lot of control over selecting books. Um, now they kind of, they put out an appro- a list that they approve, and it's kind of like a good housekeeping seal of approval but that districts use. And it, it is helpful to districts because they have knowledge that it's gone through this vetting process, but it doesn't really – you know, their districts are not required to select from that book. They could ju- that list of books. They could just go off and purchase whatever book they wanted, as long as it meets state standards. And they won't get in trouble for going off list. No. Can they pick another state's version of the same books? Let's say California picks a version of a history book that Texas didn't like, but it's the same book. It just has a California edition and a Texas edition. Can a school district in you know El Paso um, or whatever pick the California book? I think they would have to show to that it right. met. They are closer to them. They would have to show that it met Texas state standards, uh, which might be difficult if there had been a separate version of that book developed specifically for Texas. But conceivably, it seems like they could make that argument if their school board would buy it um, and their community would buy it. It just. So- Oh, go ahead. Emily? I was yeah. just going to say that, I mean, uh, <laughs> so the, I mean, but what is, you have a system where textbook companies like pull out of the process really late in the game over these demands that SBOE members make. It just seems like the legislature increasingly has, everybody looks at the SBOE and sort of, you know, with sort of like a, eye roll. an eye roll. <laughs> the legislature keeps chipping away at its authority. It did it with charter schools too, mm-hmm. basically the charter school sort of closure process, mm-hmm. right? It's like, does anybody take the SBOE seriously? I'm not sure the members of the SBOE take each other seriously. Well, that was something that happened. So for the first time, um, and there's been maybe three or four textbook approval cycles in various subjects, and publishers have always opted to go through it um, until this round where on the Friday where the vote was scheduled, um, a major publisher just decided to pull its book out because they said, hey, we developed this for a national market. We don't want to make the changes that you're asking us to make. Um, and so we're just going to pull our book out. And I think that that might, that might be signal what could be a turning point and we could maybe see legislation this this year during this legislative session that um, that really questions what role the State Board of Education plays. Do we know um, what changes they were being asked to make that they just didn't want to bother with? So the publisher did not specifically say what the changes were that made them withdraw from the process. They just gave the national market reason as the official reason. But um, going back and looking through um, the documents, because they're publicly available, um the changes were that the publisher had received criticism for not um, emphasizing 
the influence of Moses on um, the, founding the founding fathers, fathers right, <laughs> and kind of the Judeo-Christian heritage uh, that went into um, writing the Constitution. Exactly. Did they get into what Moses's influence on the founding fathers was supposed to have been, according to the standard setters? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Reeves running for the state board of yeah, education. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, I think that he is considered to be kind of the original like law bear, like person who those ten created commandment laws. things. Yeah. Um, well, he didn't. He just carried them. Well, <laughs> if, I, if I got the, the story Lord right, delivered them. To I'm him. pretty sure that's a little and bit blasphemous. I'm really glad, <laughs> we're, really glad we're having. He was just Bible. up on that hill by himself. <laughs> We're about to find out how accurate lightning is. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but that's one of the that's one of the bush. the changes that are an an element of the Texas uh, so like social our, studies our standards that killing, that like example, history scholars uh, have criticized greatly <laughs> as as being inaccurate and saying basically like students are going to come away from reading this thinking that Moses actually was a founding father. Um, so just a cool one that, didn't, that only went by <laughs> the one original name. founding yeah. father. He was like Cher. Uh, but was one of the board members though got mad because did you just compare Moses to Cher? He did yeah, just yeah, or Madonna. You know, those oh. are one name. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Reeve Hamilton is the voice you've been listening to. <laughs> yeah, Kanye. right. Exactly. The comic stylings. Dear God, Reeve Hamilton. <laughs> Reeve Hamilton is the voice you've been listening to. <laughs> no, but one of the board members did sort of take issue with this notion that they were creating the impression that Moses was a founding father, right? And yeah, uh, several di- uh, several board members criticized uh, the media and directly ap- uh, addressed uh, the press table a few times, saying and said that you know m- the media was responsible for creating this perception that uh, the state board of education thought that Moses was the founding father. I think there's been some confusion. Um, between the standard that says he was an influence and the criticism that um, that standard overstates his influence um, in, in, in some of the coverage. But what, what are these meetings like? I mean, are they comic? Do, do people laugh about this stuff or is everybody dead serious? Or how, how do these – what's the general tone of these things when they're how having conversations like this? The Tribcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that – this this last meeting seemed actually it got, had moments where members got a little punchy and, and made and start and kind of teased each other. But generally, I mean, the discussion members take each other seriously. They take the witnesses who testify seriously. Um, I think sometimes you'll hear kind of chattering among people who are sitting in the audience, gasps, um, <laughs> things along those lines. But it's I think. I did not cover the actual adoption of the social studies standards in 2010, but my understanding is that back then it was much more of a of a circus atmosphere than um, than it has been in more recent times. So a lot like the Tripcast. 2010 was more like the Tripcast. Yeah, it seems like the saying. SBOE's perception of the media is about the same as the Ferguson uh, prosecutor. Didn't you guys follow all this last night? We're basically Can you elaborate. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, he talked for like an hour, and when he was trying to get to the point about the grand jury not bringing any indictments against this cop, but the first like twenty minutes were just an indictment on the media and Twitter in particular. We're mm. a convenient target. Mm-hmm. Does Twitter count as the media? Twitter's Twitter's a way of getting things out. It's a medium. It's a news source. Mm. Right. But is it the media? Capital T. Well, it's not the mainstream media. 
It's oh, the medium right. for the it's, media. More labels than the Republican Party. You know? Ross <laughs> asked if we were going to talk about Ferguson. I figured I'd just throw it right in there. Well, that's that's not covered in the social studies uh, standards. <laughs> right. The not yet. I mean, not unless we start using Missouri's textbooks. Right. What's next on the uh, docket for the SBOE? Or are we done with them for a while? Um, they come. Their next meeting is back in January, and I mean, they have a huge amount of responsibility. They're going to be going through the charter school approval process, but that's, as Emily mentioned earlier, it's um, also some an area where they have much less authority than they did in the past. Um, but um, yeah, and then there are a few more rounds of. Um, of updates to um, to standards um, and, and other subjects, but I think this will probably be it for um, for controversy. Though you never know. And so, in, in the meantime, we have now a list of books that school districts can use or not. So, in the right. meantime, we have no controversy. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we have controversy. Uh, Oh, Emily's giving me the nod as if I know I'm leading into the next topic. Exactly. I was giving you an easy transition point. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, what what is that controversy that you were trying to lead us into? Uh, well, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some interesting conversations around abortion and pro-life and pro-choice issues in the legislature. And, uh, the it's come f- up in the legislature before. It's come up <laughs> before, sure to come up again. Uh, it's coming up in a couple different ways. The first is that you know Joe Strauss is running for re-election for House Speaker. Uh, and he, he's running, and he's and he seems to basically have, have it locked up. Yeah. I think he has run. I think we're going to mostly right. put this yeah. into past tense. Right, but you know but the, still the, folks, the folks right. who are still you know trying to unseat him. One of their arguments is that you know Joe Strauss is not as pro-life as they would like him to be. Um, and, you know, they've even come out and written some pieces, and there have been folks who basically criticized him calling him a pro-choice candidate. Uh, and, you know, this week we had Jody Laubenberg, state representative from Parker in Parker, Collin right. County, uh, and she was the uh, author – she carried House Bill 2, the omnibus abortion legislation in the last session. And she wrote a column for Trib Talk basically saying this idea that Joe Strauss is not pro-life is preposterous and here's why. You know, almost immediately in the comments, there were people chastising her and saying, you know, you're not really the author of that bill. You just took that bill from uh, ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council. This is is sort of like the argument I was making about Moses earlier. Exactly. Just like that (laughs) argument. (laughs) So, uh, so, you know, there's there's this back and forth over whether, you know, Joe Strauss is pro-life or not. And it's largely perpetuated by the people who uh, would like to unseat him. Right. So there's, uh, there's do they that. have I mean, it seems like all the recent victories of the pro-life movement, I think the ones that Lobenberg cites are HB2, which was pretty big. Mm-hmm. The sonogram sort of, bill uh, in 2011. The Choose Life license plates mm-hmm. getting approved, right. uh, which creates you know funding for sort of their causes. Although most of the things that depend on specialized license plates have found that that things better <laughs> in concept than in fact. You know, it's funds. not a lot of money. You know? <laughs> right. So there's that uh, ongoing discussion debate, uh, and interestingly, we have a woman into into the middle of it steps into the middle of it steps. Uh, incoming uh, state representative Molly White, who is from Belton, and Molly White is coming into the legislature as probably the most um, you know pro-life 
candidate or pro-life elected official, at least at a minimum among the new members. I mean, she's very conservative. Most vocally pro-life. Most vocally. She um, she was at the Turb Fest. She talked about she's had two previous abortions that she feels like she was forced into and she really, really regrets. She feels like her whole life, you know, changed in a negative way. She had, you know, terrible physical effects, but also, you know, mental health issues. She had suicidal thoughts, she said, following this uh, these abortions. And so she ended up you know, years later, starting this organization that is like an anti-abortion speakers bureau, but it goes even farther than that. They oppose birth control. Uh, they oppose any kind of sex ed that you know talks about birth control. Uh, she believes that uh, breast cancer, so that, sex ed. that birth control is linked to breast cancer, that abortion is linked to breast cancer. Uh, these are the kinds of uh, M- much of which has been refuted. Much by of which has been of refuted community. by almost all of the medical community. So it's really you know you have someone coming into the legislature whose beliefs on these issues are, you know, almost off the spectrum on the on the right hand side of the spectrum. So it's, you know, an, an interesting time following Wendy Davis's departure, uh, state senator from Fort Worth, abortion so, filibuster. So now that they had, you know, the, they went through the filibuster, they got that bill mm-hmm. out of the legislature. Um, and at the moment, it's holding up in court, although it's still in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are the, what's the next round? What goes on in this legislative session? What issues? I know there's some end-of-life issues that are probably going to come up. You know, what, I think we're actually, despite having this this figure in the legislature, I think we're going to end up seeing more end-of-life legislation on the pro-life side than we're going to see abortion legislation. You know, even Molly White has said, look, I think the legislation from last session was pretty darn uh, comprehensive. I don't know what else I would do except for maybe look at loopholes, she calls them loopholes, in judicial bypass, which is where, you know, young women who want abortions and don't have parental consent could go to a judge to get consent to have an abortion. But Molly White is just one state representative who is a freshman and therefore not particularly expected to be, you know, mm-hmm. extremely influential. So and in how, how chamber, right. How significant is her entry into this debate as, as vocal as she is? Well, I mean, it depends on how – it really just depends on what you just said. How vocal is she going to be on this particular issue? You know, a freshman usually – you know, the rule for freshmen unstated is sort of the, you know, sit down and shut up <laughs> until, you, right. until you've got some um, experience. But on a particular issue, if the legislature looks around and says we have someone who is one way or another of – particular expertise on an issue, even if they're a freshman, we're going to rely on them. Another example of this is Paul Betancourt, who was a Harris County tax assessor collector. When they get to property taxes, he's a freshman, but I bet he gets a larger than normal voice for a freshman on that particular issue. I mean, this is an issue where if this is a um, big issue in some way or another during the legislative session, Molly White's probably going to be one of the big voices. And personal stories resonate, no matter what you believe on these issues. Right. Having somebody who has a personal story and isn't afraid to tell it, you know, at least eats up a bunch of time at the microphone. <laughs> right. right. Well, and obviously what doesn't seem, you know, science seems to be a less persuasive argument to try to level in a political arena. So... I think, because you know, what, what she said like, basically – Many people try to refute her using that tool. Right. Well, you you know, you saw at the Tribune Festival that State Representative Donna Dukes from Austin was sort of so, you know, incensed by the things that Molly White was saying and the science – you know, I use that term lately – that she was pointing to, you know, uh, that Donna Dukes, um, you know, referenced her own abortion, uh, that she had not – something she hadn't said before and, you know, said, look, the, I, this was a routine medical procedure and I suffered none of these kinds of consequences. So – but it's it, interesting. I mean, it sounds like Molly, even Molly White is not 
going out there yet and saying we need to pass even more restrictive laws. Right. Um, Right. And I think, you know, one sign for Republicans is how long their legislation from last session has been tied up in the courts. And, you know, all these elements that are probably headed for the U.S. Supreme Court. It's like, you know, how much are you going to pass? Because then how much do you have to defend and how long do these court cases take? So, well, you could also get into a situation, you know, it depends on the timing of the courts. The courts could rule on the bills that they passed during the last session while they're in session this time. That might open some opportunities for the legislature Mm -hmm. to say, well, Let's look at the court ruling and adjust this or that or the other thing. Exactly. What are the current – does anyone know off the top of their heads what the current rules around sex ed in the state are? I remember in – was yes. it 2010 when – I do. Uh, Morgan is educated. <laughs> well, did, did you, I mean there was that classic moment between Evan, who's not on our podcast today, and uh, Governor Rick Perry when Evan was interviewing Perry, I think back when he was running for governor in 2010, right. and asked him about uh, abstinence-only education. And Perry famously said – famously – in certain circles, <laughs> said, I know from personal experience that absence only education works. Right. No, they just right. said abstinence works. <laughs> yeah. Abstinence. Right. Um, so a common misconception is that the state requires abstinence only education, which is a misconception. Uh, it The state only requires that school districts teach about abstinence, but it doesn't say that they can't teach about mm-hmm. other methods um, of contraception. Interesting. I didn't, so, I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. And you do have school districts that adopt abstinence only policies, and but that is something that's entirely decided at the local level. This is Moses's influence. Right. Reeves <laughs> obsessed with Moses, I think. <laughs> <Right>. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so will we – I mean, will that – could that possibly be a big fight, the sex ed stuff, if that's sort of part of her whole messaging? Probably. I mean, she hasn't said anything along those lines yet, I, you know. Uh, yeah, and, you know, I, I doubt that a brand-new member is going to walk in and have an issue that they can bring to the legislature and say, you know, I'm bringing this in and everybody, you know, jumps up and salutes. No, it's I mean, more, she, more likely that an issue, you know, that's underway or a fight that's underway that she can weigh in on. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, Strauss has made it very clear in sessions past and in this upcoming session that he does not really want to focus on, you know, these red meat social issues. He wants to be focused on infrastructure. He wants to be focused on education, um, you know, the budget. So I think that's the kind of session we're going to see. And as far as this, uh, you know, framing of Strauss as not pro-life by some members that would like to see Scott Turner in the speaker's chair goes – you know, it doesn't seem to be here nor there, given the number of votes that Strauss has put out there. Yeah, the argument against Strauss is that he's insufficiently conservative. It sort of mirrors the national argument about Mitch McConnell and, and people like that. You know, you have an activist wing of the Republican Party and you have a sort of a, you know, an establishment wing. And in this case, the argument is, you know, you the argument is that these uh, establishment guys are not conservative enough. But when you get down to brass tacks and you go issue by issue and line by line through bills and things, it's, you know, in fact... It's been a remarkably conservative legislature under Joe Strauss. I mean, a remarkably conservative House under under Strauss. And to go further right than that, you have to say you have to pick at small issues inside. You said you have to say, well, this was conservative, but it would have been even more conservative if there's not really a lot of evidence behind that assertion. But that's the assertion, and the the proof in this is whether the House buys it or not, whether the people who are intimately involved in this stuff buy the argument. And right now they're not buying the argument. For someone to the right of Joe Strauss to win an election as Speaker, they have to win probably without any Democrats because they don't. Democrats don't want to go further right. 
And so you have to win 76 votes from the 98 Republicans. And I think at last count, uh, Joe Strauss had 73, 74, if you count him, of the Republicans. So the only way Scott Turner can become speaker now is with all of the Democrats and the remaining Republicans. And I think that's really, really, really unlikely. Then that's an understatement. Well, I just I just don't, you, you know, the criticism of this kind of analysis is everybody talks about the math and it's just the math. It is the math. You have to have 76 votes. That sounds suspiciously and like science. You have, to, well, you, have to, you have to convince the you have to convince these 150 people that the thing that they're getting is not the thing that they want. Right. That the legislature and the people of Texas are more conservative than the legislature that's representing it or than the speaker that's leading that legislature. And the legislature is not buying that argument. In fact, they're they're probably less prone to that argument now than they were two years ago. Well, just since he passed away this week, how does that is this legislature compare to the way the legislature operated back when Ray Faraby was in the House? Um, Ray Faraby was in the Senate. Senate, and uh, <laughs> that's the big one on the other end. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. There's another one. There is another one. Yeah, there's two. Um, you know, it was a different time. The, you know, it, this is a two-party state with both parties in the GOP, and that was a two-party state with both parties in the Democratic, you know, party. Um, there was a group of liberals over there in the Senate, and you know, some of these arguments mirrored, in a way, the arguments now. There was a there was a group of liberals uh, in the Senate. There was a group of more conservative Democrats in the Senate. Farabee was, you know, famously almost nonpartisan. Um, he, he was able to, you know, cross lines, have friends he had disagreed with on 90 percent of the issues. You know, it was a less argumentative kind of fight, but the, the issue differences were, you know, they were similar. You know, in Texas, we've changed the labels, but we haven't really um, changed a lot of our politics. You know, we've changed emphasis from time to time. Sometimes we're more into social politics than we are into things like infrastructure and such. Sometimes we're more into the infrastructure and less into social. At that time, um, some of the social issues were boiling up. Washington had gone red. Reagan was the president. Um, but Farabee was a uh, even among people who are really good at kind of crossing over in the Senate and making deals. He's sort of the king of those guys. He's the one everybody looks at and says, you know, you could be more like Farabee. You know, or the old guys say that. <laughs> Who's a Farabee today? I'm not sure we have one at the moment. I mean, we might. The, the problem is that we don't have a Senate or a House right now where there is any kind of regard for someone who can come let us reason together as mm-hmm. opposed to let's represent this partisan faction or this partisan faction, you know, most stridently. You know, the thing that gets attention and that gets them um, – that they seem to be attracted to is the fight and not to the solution. And, and Farabee was more about the solution. Well, and uh, but it's possible that one could emerge. I would imagine. Well, it's always possible, and on and issue to issue. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it never works, but you know, on issue to issue, it, it you know it comes out that you know, hey, that's unusual. Those guys work together. You know, Dan Patrick was in the middle of the education bill last time, and Joe Strauss said, you know, behind the scenes, he worked pretty well with us. Um, I think that was an intentional. <laughs> well, but there are but there are but there are issues like that where people cross over and where they don't disagree, and you have to create you know sort of safe space for people to disagree without um, trying to murder each other. Mm-hmm. Farabee was really good at that. Well, can, can we all agree that it's time for us to to leave and bring this podcast to an end? I kind sure. of thought you were going to say something about murdering each other. <laughs> <laughs> can we all agree that it's we time to... We might agree to... on that as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, yeah. Uh, happy happy Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving to everyone. Uh, if you have questions or comments, 
that you'd like to email us as a sort of break from your family during the holidays, you can send those to Tribcast at TexasTribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for doing our music. That's what we're most thankful for here at the Tribcast. Uh, on behalf of Morgan, Emily Ross, and our producer Todd, this is Reeve. Thanks for listening. I just like to play with it.